Welcome back to our study in the book of 2 Corinthians, ladies. Today we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and I've titled this lesson, Day 3, Be Reconciled Already. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 5 through verse 11. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So this section we come to has been argued over a bit, and in order to see where each side gets their understanding from, we have to dig a bit. So the first and the majority side looks at this and is reminded of the other letter that we do have from Paul to Corinth. In that letter, we see in chapter 5, a member of the church in Corinth was sinning sexually by having taken his father's wife, not his mother, but his stepmother, to his own bed. And the church, instead of rebuking this man for this, was proud of it. Paul rebukes the church for their ignorance and arrogance, and he rebukes the man and tells the people to cast this man out of the body so that he'll repent of what he is doing. That's a punishment given to this man by the majority of the body at Corinth. So according to this view, that is what is being referenced here. So here's how this flows. The one who has caused pain offense to the body at Corinth is this man who sexually sinned and had to be put out of the body for a time. This man has been punished in being set outside the body. That's all that is necessary for this man to be brought to repentance. Paul is not personally offended, but any offense or pain that he feels is simply out of concern for this body of believers. Now, in verse 7, we see Paul say specifically to forgive this guy and comfort him so that they don't end up going too far the other direction. So before they were had been allowing this guy to sin and they were celebrating it, giving shelter for the sin, and now they're in danger of taking the punishment too far and continuing to beat it into this guy's head well after he's actually truly repentant. And that's what Paul is calling them back from. The goal has been achieved. The man was handed over to the world in his sin, and he has repented. And they need to accept his repentance and comfort him. So Paul begs them to reaffirm their love for this man and tells them that this is why he wrote, that he might test them to see if they had obeyed his instructions regarding this man. And they have, and so now they need to forgive him. Anyone who they forgive when they are acting with right judgment, Paul is cool with forgiving them too. He's not going to continue to carry a grudge on when someone has repented. And whatever Paul has forgiven on their behalf is done so that Christ might be glorified, that the truth of the saving nature of the gospel would be seen, and Satan would not be given a foothold within the body. So that makes sense, right? If you treat sin too lightly, then Satan has a way in to the body through that sin. But if you treat sin too seriously and withhold forgiveness, you're also leaving room for Satan's schemes as he can use the fear of punishment and resentment and bitterness that can result from unwarranted and prolonged punishment on truly repentant people to cause division. 
Well, that does seem to make sense, especially as Paul's reference to both the punishment and the decision to forgive being a corporate issue, not an individual one. And Paul is being intentionally tender here as he refuses to take any personal offense here. Well, the other side of this suggests that this is actually not about that man from 1 Corinthians 5, but it's about an unnamed person in the body in Corinth who has been spreading false accusations about Paul, and the offense was primarily against Paul, but he's willing to set it aside. In this view, all of this is actually personal, and Paul does have a legitimate right to claim the personal insult, but he's choosing not to. So the interpretation that would flow from that would be as follows. Paul is not the one who caused pain to these believers. No, it was the one accusing Paul falsely who caused them pain because these believers were brought into conflict with Paul and the gospel as they were swept away by believing these false accusations. So Paul then is setting aside his own rights, allowing the church to practice appropriate discipline and is encouraging them to forgive as well. So Paul would be setting aside his personal issue here. He points to the greater harm caused and he allows the church to mete out discipline and restoration and is doing so to help this church to judge with right judgment. Now I'm going to be perfectly honest here. I always believed that this section was about the man from 1 Corinthians 5, but as I was reading it this time, especially after all that Paul had said about the painful visit and then reading verse 5, I was struck, well, not literally, but I was struck that this sounds personal to me, and so I began to wonder what this passage was about. So I dug into some commentaries and consulted Peter, who are smarter than I am, and then I flopped back to this being about the man in 1 Corinthians this really does seem to be a sin issue that centers around one member of the body. We see Paul encourage corporate discipline and restoration, and the fact that Paul doesn't seem to have a personal reason to be affronted, well, that's where I'm lining up again. But I wanted to lay out both of those ideas for you all so that you understand the discussion going on here. But when all of the big trusted commentaries agree on the meaning of a passage— we should consider their arguments and wisdom, and we should be careful about abandoning the plain meaning of the text for something new. But regardless of that tiny little controversy, the context of this is actually pretty clear, and we see that we are really looking at a real-life example of how the process of church discipline should be carried out, and we see that correctly applied church discipline is sufficient for the purpose God has given. If that person is truly God's, they will repent and they will be brought back. If they aren't, then they shouldn't be in the body anyway, causing harm and sowing discord. Church discipline should be practiced, and when the person who is being disciplined is truly repentant, they should be forgiven, they should be reconciled to the body of Christ, and they should be welcomed back with mercy into the unity of the body. So let's jump backward to Matthew 18 today, just so we're all clear on what the process of church discipline looks like. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So the process is pretty straightforward, right? If a brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him and deal with it in private with the two of you. Hopefully this will be as far as this process has to go. That person will listen and repent and reconciliation will occur naturally. If, however, the unrepentant party does not listen, take witnesses. Take along two or three people to lay out the case and to address the seriousness of this sin. In the Bible, in order to establish evidence, you always had to have at least two witnesses. This is carrying that Old Testament prescription on. In our world today, I would say that this is when I would involve the elders of the church in the process. If the person repents, fabulous. Again, hopefully it won't have to go further. However, if the person continues to insist on their sin, the issue needs to be brought before the church and the person needs to be removed from the fellowship and treated as a Gentile. That does not mean you abuse that person. Because how are we supposed to treat unbelievers? With respect, with dignity, but with truth, right? And we're not supposed to be in intimate fellowship with unbelievers because we have a different spirit within us. So be kind to them, absolutely. Don't shun them like some sects have said, but while they refuse to repent, don't welcome them into the fellowship of believers to enjoy the blessings of God through God's people while they are choosing to love their sin more than they love God. Period. Whatever you bind on earth, Jesus says, will be bound in heaven. Guess what? That's about church discipline, not about demons. That's about removing those who profess Christ, but live lives loving their sin. If you remove them from the body based on these steps, based on righteous judgment in this way, they also are set apart this way, given over to Satan, to be sifted so that they might learn to hate their sin. They are bound over to Satan. If any two or three of you agree on earth about this, that is, if with the biblical number of accepted witnesses you agree that this discipline needs to happen, God is on your side, basically, where two or three are gathered to implement discipline of the members of the body of Christ, they have the approval of Christ. That's what these verses are about, and in the context, you can't hide that. So this is what has happened in Corinth. It was public knowledge what was happening with this man from 1 Corinthians 5. There was nothing secret about it. Everyone knew. So they needed to act to remove this person from their midst to stop giving him cover for his sin and stop approving of it. And they did that. And he repented. The goal of all of this is to win your brother. The goal is reconciliation. It's not vengeance or an opportunity to be better than your brother or sister. If at any point the one being called out on church discipline does repent and truly agrees that what they are doing is sin and calls out to God for forgiveness and turns from their sin and stops doing it, reconcile them back to the body of Christ. Do these things in an orderly way, not out of anger or out of a desire to hurt. Judge righteously and honor God in what you're doing. Honestly, I love that we have this glimpse of successful church discipline practice here. This church had so many issues and to see this, to see this man broken over his sin and repentant and seeking to do whatever is necessary to be brought back 
enduring perhaps extra discipline thanks to these people who weren't sure when enough was enough, it's beautiful. We should always desire reconciliation and we should always seek it. We're far too ready to just walk away when a relationship gets hard. We may say, oh, well, they won't repent, so there's no point. And so we don't act, even when we should. Yet this is the pattern that is set forth for us in Scripture, and we need to be careful about following it. Ladies, are you in conflict with anyone in the body right now? Is it an actual sin issue, or is it a preference issue? If it's a sin issue, is this something you need to bring up to your siblings in Christ? If it is a man, I would suggest you bring along your husband or another male from the start. But if it's a woman, what is stopping you from going to that sister to be reconciled? Perhaps you need to repent and confess how you've sinned against them. Or perhaps they have sinned against you and you need to go to them and lovingly show them their sin so that they can be reconciled to God and to you as well. Keep your goal to glorify God as you go through this process, but don't be afraid to do the hard work, ladies. Remember, our Savior reconciled God with us, his sinful creation. Reconciliation is what he does and what we are called to as well. May we glorify him as we strive to obey that calling. You'll find the notes for this study under the Bible Studies tab of the website naomistable.com, Day 3. Be reconciled already.